Friend, I want to tell you tonight that revival can be a reality in your life tonight. As we look how God intervened in the life of his children in the Old Testament time and these promises that are given to Old Testament Israel, I'll tell you, there are some, these principles are all found in the New Testament and God works similarly in the way with his believers in the day in which we live. And I want us to look at, at verse 14 and how we can see revival can be a reality. But the very first thing that I want you to consider is that if we're going to live and walk in revival, we've got to understand what revival is. There's a lot of definitions about revival out there. Some are good or some are bad. Uh, uh, Roy Hessian says that revival is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ being lived by you, lived through you, rather. And I love that definition of it. But could I just submit to your thinking tonight that revival is simply this, in this working definition, revival is simply returning to normal. Returning to normal as a child of God. It's interesting, when you look at the word revive or, or revival in the Old Testament, it has that idea. Listen to these verses in Judges chapter 15 and verse 19. The Bible says, But God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout. And when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. So when he drank the water, his strength came back to him, or it was restored back to its normal, original condition, returning to normal. 1 Kings 17, 22, and the Lord of the, heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. God used Elijah to resurrect this child, and when the child came back to life, that was the word that was used there, revived. He was returned back to his normal, physical, original condition. And 2 Kings 13, 21, and it came to pass as they were bearing a man that they beheld, uh, they spied a band of men and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down, he touched the bones of Elisha. He revived and stood up on his feet. How would you like to be at that kind of a funeral? And they lower this man down. He touches the bones of Elisha and he comes back to life. He stands up on his feet. He returned back to his living original condition. And the Hebrew word that is used there is the word revived. It's the concept of returning to normal. In Nehemiah chapter 4, it's not only used of, of humans and living things. In Nehemiah 4, 2, and he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? And so as these Gentiles are looking on as Nehemiah and God's people, they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They're thinking, are they going to rebuild the Temple Mount? Are they going to start sacrificing again? Are they going to return this city back to its normal, original condition after being broken down in just heaps of, of, of rubbish and of rock? And what they were doing is they were restoring the city of Jerusalem. They were rebuilding it. They were returning it to normal. In Isaiah 38, 9, the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick, was recovered of his sickness. So it's talking about someone who was living, they got sick, and they recovered of it. The word that's used there is the word revived. Although it's translated recovered, it's the same Hebrew word. It means return to normal. In 2 Kings 20, verse 7, Isaiah said, take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And so whether it's a man who is sick, whether it's a city that's being rebuilt, whether it's a man's strength coming back to him, or people that were alive that died and now were brought back to life, the word that is used is this Hebrew word revived, and it has the idea of simply returning to normal. Remember when you got saved? 
I tell you, that was, a, that was a glorious day for me. I was nine years old. I remember when I woke up the next morning, the first thought that I had is I will never spend one second in hell. I mean, what could be better? And I will be with him for eternity. Here's what's going on down, you know, and it just seems like the weight of the world is just lifted off your shoulders. You, you, you notice the birds singing again. There's a joy and there's a peace and there's a happiness. There was nothing between your soul and the Savior. I was so excited. I told all my friends who didn't know the Lord, I wanted them to have that peace and that joy that's only found in Jesus Christ. Remember how sweet that was when you got saved and there was no sin between your soul and the Savior. Is it like that now? Has there ever been a time you were closer to the Lord than you are right now? Then what's happened? You need to return back to normal. You need to get back to that place where there is no sin between you and the Savior, and you are completely right with him. That ought to be normalcy to the Christian. I want you, first of all, to see in this text, in 2, Corinthians, in 2 Chronicles, rather, chapter 7 and verse 14, I want you to see, number one, the plea for revival, we must answer the request for revival. God's plea for revival, we must answer the request for, for revival. If you look in verse 14, God begins with an if-then conditional clause. He says in verse 14, he says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear and will heal their land. I want you to notice a few things about this call that God is initiating. First of all, I want you to see that God's plea for revival is inclusive. God's plea for revival is inclusive. Notice he says, if my people. He didn't say, Solomon, if you dedicate yourself, if you separate yourself, you pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then I'll send revival. God didn't look at the Levitical priests and those involved in the corporate worship and the leadership of it and say, if all you Levites, you separate yourself, pray and humble yourself and seek my face. You know what? Then I'll send revival. God didn't say that. He said, if my people. It is just as important for the businessman in this room to live and walk in revival as it is for your pastor. It is just as important for the homemaker, the housewife in this room to live and walk in revival as it is for this evangelist. And whether you're nine or you're 90, God's plan and program for your life is that you live and walk in revival. It's inclusive. It's every single one of us. God's plea for revival is inclusive. But number two, it's also immediate. God gives them some conditions that need to be met if revival is to happen. And then in verse number 15... He says, now mine eyes should be open and mine ears attended to the prayer that is made in this place. So he gave them some principles that needed to be met or some conditions. And then he fully expected them to meet those conditions. You know, God doesn't want you to go home and pray about it. Listen, God wants you to live and walk in revival the rest of Sunday today. God wants you to live and walk in revival all of Monday. He wants you to live and walk in revival all of Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. The rest of this year, the rest of your life, God's plan and program for your life is that you live and walk in revival. And this plea is inclusive. It's all of us. This plea is immediate. It ought to begin right now. And there shouldn't be wasted time. But this plea, number three, is not impossible. Why would God initiate something he never planned to do? 
Listen, I, 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 can I just bear my soul with you tonight? I am tired of traveling this country and hearing people tell me that God can't send revival in our country to our churches here in the United States of America or even around the world. Now, I don't know if it's their theological persuasion that is keeping them from that, or they have a model of their theology that really, that revival doesn't fit in that and how, how God works in the hearts of men. And, and I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you, I know God could send revival in the day in which we live because, number one, God is on the throne of heaven and he is sovereign and he is in control of all things. How dare we tell God what he can do and what he can do? But number two, I know that revival is possible because when you look through the scriptures, God delighted in sending revival against the backdrop of tremendous national sin. We may have looked around our TVs or looked around the world in the last several weeks, and we may think the moral compass of the world is in the dumpster and the world is unraveling and it's falling apart. But is it not in the darkness where the light shines the greatest? God delighted in sending revival against the backdrop of tremendous national sin. We looked at uh, God's work of grace in the hearts of the Ninevites this morning, if you were with us. And here is a city that was so wicked that everybody hated them, the Ninevites. I can't even read you an article in a mixed setting like this of some of the wicked things they would do in that city. When they would go in and conquer a nation or a town, they would take all the captives, they would gouge their eyes out, they would cut their hands off and their feet off, then they would let them live. I mean, how really twisted and demented do you have to be to do that? They would sell their own kids to pay their bills. Nice group of Ninevites, a group of people these Ninevites were. And no wonder why there was just an animosity of all the nations that surrounded them. And, 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 and yet it was in that context, against the backdrop of that tremendous national sin, that one man, Jonah, walked in and said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and a city of a million turned their heart to God. You want to talk about wicked government? We could talk about Ahab and Jezebel. And they were killing the preachers of God. We haven't even come to that point in our country. And they were killing the preachers of God, yet it was in that context that Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel. God sends fire from heaven. It's one of the greatest of miracles that God did in the Old Testament uh, and just a testimony to the God's power. Now people are throwing their bodies to the ground. They're saying, Jehovah, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. There were 850 false prophets that were slain. Not a bad day for gospel ministry, if you ask me, and 850 uh, false prophets were slain and against the backdrop of tremendous national sin. What about the day of Pentecost that Paul was preaching to those who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? And you want to talk about a hot sermon? He said, he with wicked hands have slain the Christ and yet 3000 were saved that day. And I tell you, God delighted in sending revival against the backdrop of tremendous national sin. And yes, revival is possible in the United States of America. Revival is possible in Indianapolis. Revival is possible right here in our midst tonight at Southeast Baptist Tabernacle. You can live and you can walk in revival. God's plea that we need to answer the request. It's inclusive. It's all of us. It's immediate. It ought to begin right now. And you know what, folks? It's not impossible. We can live and walk in revival. But number two, I want you to see the precautions uh, the, the precautions about revival, and we must avoid the robbers 
of revival. We see this in the next part of the text here. But it was three minutes after three in a train outside of London, England, where a train pulled up to a signal. They'd never seen a signal in the tracks there before. David Whitby, who was the fire marshal, stepped off the train looking to see what was going on. He saw to the rear of the train 13 men to seemingly appear out of nowhere uh, wearing the blue uh, railroad uh, overalls, bearing the emblem of the railroad company on them. They were working all over the train and on the tracks. He went back there to see what was going on. He tapped one of these men on the shoulder. They turned around. They clubbed David Whitby over the head, knocked him out, threw him down a ravine, killing him. The operator of the train, the conductor or, or, the, or the engineer, he stepped off uh, that train to see what was happening to David Whitby. They hit him violently over the head and they threw him back into the locomotive and made, the pull, made him pull the train up another 50 yards. They had set the fake signal out too early. These 13 men then broke into the mail car of that train and they formed a human chain. They started to unload over 17 mail bags full of money off the train They were robbing the train. They took the equivalent of over $70 million off of that train. They threw a wad of cash on the train operator's lap, realizing that because they had hit him so hard, he would never work another day in his life. They were hiding in a small farmhouse in Oxfordshire, England, and they cranked up the Tony Bennett music, The Good Life, in celebration. And they started to play Monopoly and Celebration to the great heights that they had just pulled off using the real money they had just stolen in order to play the game. Unbeknownst to them, they were leaving the evidence all over the game pieces and on the dice that would not only later incriminate them, but incarcerate them. The authorities rained down in that small farmhouse, and these 13 men fled literally to the uttermost parts of the world, even as far as South America. All of these men were eventually, they were huddled down, they were arrested, they were incarcerated. They didn't pass go, they didn't collect $200, they went straight to jail. Historians have nicknamed the train robbery of 1969, listen to this, as the greatest robbery to ever take place in the history of mankind. But they got it wrong. You see, the greatest robbery to ever take place in the history of mankind did not take place on a train outside of London, England in the late 1960s. The greatest robbery to ever take place in the history of mankind is not taking place in a bank vault tonight or in a high museum of art. The greatest robbery to ever take place in the history of mankind tragically could be taking place in your heart tonight. The scripture tells us that the devil is a thief. He comes in, he says, you're your father, the devil. And the lust of your father, he will do. He's a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth that he is a thief. He said, it is the devil who comes in to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I came to give life that you might have it more abundantly. You want to live for the devil and the pleasures of this world, you're going to get robbed. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ in relationship with him that only affords how to live life to the fullest, to the maximum. So it is the devil who comes in to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And friend, the devil and employs some master thieves that not only work in your life, they work in my life too. And the devil employs some master thieves that work in your life for the express purpose to rob you of revival. And notice God mentions them and tells us what they are in this text. Number two, notice the precautions for revival. There are some robbers that we need to avoid. Would you look back at verse 14? It says, if my people, which are called by my name, here's the very verse one, shall 
humble themselves. Here's the first robber that the devil employs to rob us of revival. Really the first robber we are to avoid it is the robber called, number one, pride. Friend, if there is anything that will rob you of revival, is this thing called pride. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is nigh to them that have a broken heart and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Notice that word. In Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. In Isaiah 57, 15, God says to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The word contrite and being broken has the idea of taking a clay pot. This Hebrew word is the idea of taking a clay pot and throwing it to the ground. But it goes a little bit beyond that. The Hebrew word has the idea also, imagine that clay pot breaking apart into a thousand pieces, but collecting now all those pieces of that pottery, the clay pieces, and then taking a grinding stone and literally grinding them into a powder and crushing it and pulverizing it till there was just dust and nothing left. That is what this word means. And God is saying to this man, I'm going to look to those that are broken, to those that are contrite. You know what God is looking for? You know what, what really pride keeps us from? This idea of brokenness. And if there is ever a need in the church today, it is this matter of brokenness. You know, the fact is, you and I, we need to die to our own dreams, to our own desires, to our own will. Jesus said in the New Testament, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it'll never produce fruit. And as he's talking to that agrarian culture, they understood what he was talking about. That seed literally dies or decomposes in the soil, and only then it can germinate, and then it can bring forth fruit or bring forth for the harvest. And he's saying, listen, you and I, we both need to die to our own dreams, to our own will, to our own desire, and be submitted with a reckless abandon to his will. Folks, I don't mean to be unkind tonight, but life is not about you. It's about him. And I'll tell you, when there is a brokenness, and you just step into the path that God has ordained for you, And you just walk the road that he has in front of you right now. And life no longer is about you, but life is all about him. I'm telling you, this is when revival begins. And it's it's nothing more called pride. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those uh, things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, or he's broken and trembleth at my word. Guys, when was the last time you trembled at God's word? I want to talk about this matter of pride. It's pride that'll keep you from saying, I'm sorry. It's pride that'll keep you from saying, you know what? I wronged you. Would you forgive me? It's pride that'll keep you in your seat during an invitation after a preaching service saying, oh, well, I'll deal with that later. That doesn't apply to me or that was a good message for somebody else. It's nothing more than pride. No, I'm not into men bashing because I are one, okay? But you know how pride exhibits itself in our life? You know what, guys? There's usually a few ditches that we as men that we fall into with pride. One of them is that we are, we are, uh, we are so disconnected from the spiritual life of our family. We are completely uninvolved 
in the spiritual life of our family. Or another ditch that we fall into is that we are so domineering and manipulating and controlling, we manipulate everyone else's agenda to meet ours. Could I begin with the first? There is something in America today that is in our culture that is absolutely killing us, and it's called the absent father. Folks, I am tired of traveling this country and seeing the most spiritual people in the home be the wives. Now, I'm grateful for godly ladies, and the Bible is full of them, and your church is full of them, but not to the exclusion of godly men. Guys, we ought to be driving the spiritual things that happen in our home. God's given us the position of leadership through the scriptures. That's how he delineates it. And we ought to be the spiritual leaders. It shouldn't be our wives that are having to drive everything spiritual that is going on in the home. Remember what I said in that New Testament passage, that it's the devil that comes in to steal, to kill, and destroy the devil is the thief. Jesus was also giving another, another example in the New Testament. And he says, when a thief breaks through to steal, if you remember this text, what is the first priority of the thief? It is to bind who? The strong man. So in other words, he's working off a premise that we would all understand. If a thief breaks into, into a house, the greatest threat of resistance to that thief is going to be the man, usually. Not that women are powerless, but, but a lot of times they're the man in the house. He's going to be the one that's going to defend it first. And so you know what the thief thinks? Well, if there's a man in the house, I got to tie him up. I got to knock him out. I got to render him useless. Once he's wrapped up in bondage, once he's out of the way, you know what? I can probably overpower the women and the kids, and then I can just do what I want, whatever in the house. Remember, it's the devil who comes in to steal. He is a thief. And you know what the first priority of the devil is? It is to bind the strong men of homes and our churches. And guy, if you're a father in this room, that there is a target on your chest, the devil is out to destroy you. Listen, strong churches are made of strong families. Would you agree with that? Strong churches are made of strong families. Strong families are made of strong men. And this is exactly why the devil goes after them. Because if the devil can wrap the man up in bondage spiritually, if he can just, uh, just attack him and, and, and then he falls, you know what, then that will put a chink in the armor. That'll help to crumble the family in, in, in return. That helps really to crumble the church. And it's no wonder why Satan is after the men, really, in our country and in our churches. And if you're a guy in this room, there is a target on your chest. And this, tonight, you need to wake up. Listen, there is an enemy. He is a real enemy. There are real weapons, and he is after you. And sometimes we are so uninvolved spiritually in the life of our families. Guys, could I ask you, when was the last time your family caught you having devotions? When was the last time they walked in? And the pages of your Bible were just wet with your tears. Not that emotion shows the real working of God, but you were so broken over the word of God and God was dealing with you and you were changing and, and God was impacting you through the power of the scriptures. When was the last time that you ever said to your family, hey, I want you to gather around. Would you look at this verse that I saw today? This has to do exactly with what we're dealing with. Guys, when was the last time you had a, had a family devotion or a family altar time? You just gathered around together. You just read the scriptures. Maybe it's why you don't have revival. 
if it's so robbed, if they're totally uninvolved spiritually in the life of their family, or they're so domineering, they manipulate everyone else's agenda to meet their own. Woman, go get me a glass of iced tea. You know what it ought to be? It ought to be, honey, I'm going to get something to drink. Would you like something? You know what, guys? We ought to be the greatest servants of our home. Could I say that again? Men, we ought to be the greatest servants of our home. Think about this. Jesus Christ was a coming conqueror, and he never picked up a sword. He was the king of kings and the lord of lords. He never picked up a crown. He was a servant, and he picked up a towel. And he washed the feet of deceivers like Judas. He washed the feet of of doubters like Thomas. He washed the feet of deniers like Peter. And he served them without exception and without expecting anything in return. You know what, guys? We ought to be the greatest servants of our home. If there's anybody you ought to sacrifice, guys, it ought to be us. Mark 10, 45, he came, Jesus came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. And as Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples, he turns and says, happy are ye if you do these things. That's what real leadership is. It's servant leadership. You see the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. You know what the reality is? He who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. Guys, could I ask you a question tonight? How dirty is your towel? If I talked to your wife, your family for five minutes, what would they say about your servant attitude? That's nothing more than pride. Guys, a lot of times, and I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just shooting it straight tonight. A lot of times our wives come to us and they say, honey, I don't know if you've realized this, but you've, you've developed this habit, whatever it is, in your life. You ask a you ask a woman when they want marriage, they want to be loved. They want someone to love them, to cherish them. They want someone to laugh with, someone to cry with, who's always going to have their back. They want to be loved. You ask a man what they want in marriage, a lot of times it's very different. You know what? They want respect. And so the, the husband is thinking, you know what? If I'm really transparent with my wife, if I really own up to that failure of that habit that I'm developing in my life, and I admit to that, she won't respect me anymore. So our pride, our pride encourages us to do this, guys. We build this shining suit of armor like, and try to pass it off like we don't have a struggle in the world. All the while, your failures are just as glaring as the nose on your face to everyone else. And we try to pass it off like we don't have a struggle in the world. And maybe we respond in anger. Maybe we point the finger back at them and try to discredit the messenger. Well, oh yeah, well, you don't do this or you do this. And we turn it back on them. You know what? It's nothing more than pride. You know what humility says? You know, sweetheart, I, I have developed that habit in my life. I'm not proud about it. In fact, I'm embarrassed by it. That's why I responded in anger. I've asked God to forgive me. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And would you pray for me and keep me accountable that I would have victory in this area of my life? Ladies, you tell me if I'm not right, but when your husband responds with that kind of brokenness and that kind of humility, your respect level goes away like this, doesn't it? But when you pass it off, like you don't have a struggle in the world, man, your respect level goes way like this. You know, ladies, how pride exhibits itself in your life many times? 
many times ladies are guilty of giving gunny sack forgiveness. Now, you might say, preacher, I know you're from North Carolina, but what kind of a redneck term is that? I'm pretty sure that's not in the Greek in the Pauline corpus. <laughs> what? What's gunny sack forgiveness? Well, you know what a gunny sack is. It's a bag that holds something. Ladies, let's say your husband does something to offend you. He says, you know what, honey, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Okay, I forgive you, but you throw it in the gunny sack of your mind. And then the next week later, he does something else. Honey, I'm so sorry. Would you forgive me? Okay, I forgive you, but you throw it in the gunny sack of your mind. And then the next week, he really messes up bad. He says, honey, I know that was so hurtful to you. I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? Okay, I forgive you, but you throw it in the gunny sack of your mind. And in your mind, you have this accountant's ledger that you have all the faults and all the wrongs and all the grievances that he has done against you, even though he's asked for forgiveness and to make it right. And you say you've forgiven it, like you have like a, a, an accountant's Count's ledger in your mind and you have it all there and you meditate on it. You think about it over and over. And then the next week he does one little thing and kaboom, it explodes. Oh, you say you'll change, but you never do. Hey, remember three weeks ago when you did this, you go to the gunny sack of your mind, you take it out and throw it in his face. And he's thinking, man, I thought that was forgiven. I thought we dealt with that. Hey, remember two weeks ago when you did this and you throw that in his face? Oh, you messed up so bad last week. I got to get two hands to get this one out of the gunny sack. And you throw all of his past failures in his face and use it as ammunition of why you don't need to, to submit to the leadership of your own husband. You know what, ladies? Submitting to your husband, you know what submitting to your husband is? It's simply ducking so God can hit your husband. God is going to change your husband far better and far greater with a better degree of effectiveness than you can do with your manipulation. But you can let God change you. It's nothing more than pride. It's me. Me, me, look how I was wronged, how I deserve better, how my rights were violated. It's not about the Lord. It's all about yourself and it's, and it's being proud and it's nothing more than pride. Ladies, I am so glad God doesn't forgive you like that. That when you come to the cross of Calvary, you know what God does? He takes all of your sin. He throws it in the sea of his forgetfulness. And God doesn't remember your sin. And you shouldn't either. Be kind, tenderhearted. Forgiving and loving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. It's nothing more than pride. Maybe for some ladies in this room, if the truth were to be, made, were to be told... Maybe when your husband walks into the room, your spirit doesn't gravitate to him. It gravitates away from him. And maybe there's need to be forgiveness that needs to be granted. And, and maybe you're just holding on to those offenses. It's nothing more than pride. And it's a robber that, God, that the devil is going to use, that God wants to defeat in your life. It's nothing more than pride. And listen to me, you are being robbed tonight of revival. Notice it's a robber called pride, but look back at our text in verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. You know what robber number two is? It's the robber called prayerlessness. It's the robber called prayerlessness. In every revival you will ever read about in this country or in countries abroad, Every revival was always started either by a strong presence in the pulpit, there was strong preaching, faithful to the text, and prayer. 
I was reading a book uh, a number of years ago, 400 years of revival in Scotland. Absolutely fascinating what God did in that country. And every revival we ever see, it always started in prayer. The famous revival under Jonathan Edwards began with his famous call to prayer. The marvelous work of grace among the Native Americans found its origins in the days and the nights that David Brainerd spent in prayer. The American Revival of 1857, the revival in New York under Charles G. Finney, was started and carried on by God's people in prayer. President of Yale many years ago, he encouraged his students to begin to pray for revival. Two of those students took that to heart. They went down to Cane Ridge, Kentucky. They just started to pray that God, that was the front line of really the frontier at the time. And he was praying that they were praying that God would do an unusual work. God began to work so strong and so mightily and so sweeping was the moving of God. They would have outdoor services with 25 to 30,000 in attendance with literally thousands coming to know the Lord as their Savior. And it all started with prayer. It's been over 100 years in our country since we've seen God do a major act by way of revival. Does that bother you? How long has it been since you've seen God do a major act by way of revival in your heart? Man, does that bother you? And it's all by prayer. It's been said no man is greater than his prayer life. Could I ask you tonight, how great are you? If you're like me, man, I struggle. I struggle to be consistent. Listen, if prayer didn't matter and mean anything, why does the devil fight you so hard on this battlefront? Because he runs in fear of a church that is on their knees. Maybe there have gone days that have turned into weeks, that have turned into months without a rich time alone with just him in prayer. Can I ask you the question, what was the last time that you just got on your knees and you prayed and you met with your God in prayer? You looked up at the clock and an hour had gone by. Or 30 minutes. Prayer is an indispensable factor to revival. And we're so robbed by prayerlessness. Maybe that's why you don't have revival. But as you look back at our text, he tells us to avoid the robber called pride. He tells us to call uh, the robber of prayerlessness. By the way, in Mark 1, 35, one of the most convicting verses of all of Scripture to me, the Bible says, In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out, speaking of Jesus, and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And don't you think if the Son of God had to carve out that time in his earthly schedule, how much more should we be doing the same? There's also another robber we are to avoid in verse 14. He says, if we were to pray, humble ourselves and pray and seek my face. Number three, there's the robber called pride. There's a robber called prayerlessness. But the third robber to avoid is the robber called preoccupation. And I'll tell you, maybe as I studied for this message, I'll tell you, this is maybe the tip of the sword of the truth that pierces my heart the deepest. The robber called preoccupation. To seek God's face, it takes time to do that, doesn't it? 
I mean, we live in a world where there are just hundreds of voices vying for your attention. We live in the digital age. We're constantly on our phones. We're, we're watching the news. We're so connected to social media. And there's just so many different voices that are speaking into our life. And we just, and it's so easy to get wrapped up with job and, and the work responsibilities and the family responsibilities. And, and those are not necessarily wrong. But we get so distracted through preoccupation. It takes time to seek the Lord's face. You see, the devil knows that for many of us here tonight, he's not going to get you with overtly wicked things, maybe drug abuse or maybe drunkenness or pornography, although that might be represented in the building tonight. And the devil knows he might not get you with, with overtly wicked things. So you know what the devil does? It's very sly and it's very crafty. He gets us with wasteful things. Things that are not wrong in and of themselves. But listen, it's when they take a greater priority in our life than him. And man, it's so easy to do. And I know some kids that they can play Fortnite on their PS4 for five hours. They can't read their Bible five minutes. That's called idolatry and it's alive and well. But you know what, man? I know some guys that can sit in a tree stand and go deer hunting in 30-degree weather for eight hours, and they don't read their Bible five minutes. It's idolatry just the same. Our toys just get bigger. Maybe we get after our kids for playing video games, but yet we waste our time, and we let that take a greater priority in our life than something else. Listen, I'm not going to get to heaven, and God's not going to look at me and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because you hit a nice golf shot, and we're one under on the back nine. It doesn't work that way. Is there anything wrong with video games or hunting or playing golf? No, but listen, it becomes wrong when it takes a greater priority in your life than him. You show me where you spend your time and I'll show you your God. We're going to find time to do what we really want to do. I realize that this is going to be a strong statement. And you know what? I love you, but I just want you to know my heart on this. When we let our kids' sports schedules dictate when they go to church, we are fools as parents. We are fools. Because really, here's the message that we're shooting across the bow. Yeah, you know what? Christ is important, but there are some other things that are more important than him. I remember when I was 10, growing up in Atlanta, my dad is now home with the Lord, has been home with the Lord almost two and a half years, that I had the opportunity, I played soccer year-round, I had the opportunity to travel on a traveling soccer team at age 10. They would travel throughout the Southeast. If you're in that soccer world, you know, AAU is kind of the basketball, well, classic soccer down South was kind of like the AAU, is the feeder into the, the college system. And all the scouts would, would watch that, and they would develop you through those classic soccer teams. And I had the opportunity to play on one. And, and uh, they played on Sundays, and it was sponsored by Anheuser-Busch. And my dad said two problems. <laughs> Missing Church on Sunday and Anheuser-Busch. I said, you know, Dad, this is a great opportunity. I really wanted to play. And my dad, he, was, he grew up in Brooklyn, New York. He was a typical New Yorker. You never had to worry about what my dad was thinking. You know, if you know any New Yorkers, or, you know, we're, we're, we're just pretty blunt just to tell you how we think. And, and so he had given me some Bible verses about honoring the Lord and, and being in the Lord's house and the dangers of alcohol and how it destroys family. You know, and, he just, and I said, Dad, but I really want to play. He turned the Bible around. He slid it over to me. He said, you got eyes. You read it. You tell me what he said. 
And I said, okay, I understand that you're making these decisions based out of these principles here. You know, I was so glad that I had a dad that wasn't just too busy with other things that he stepped into the life of a 10-year-old. Because when I turned 18, the letters started to roll in for full-ride scholarships. Remember, it was February 1st. It was the first day prospective, or coaches could call prospective athletes. Coach Crossman called. said, Ron, we saw you play. We want to offer you a scholarship. Over the course of four years, like $100,000 of like a semi-private school. And, and I said, Coach, I, I'm very flattered, and that's really been a dream of mine. But God's called me to preach. I'm going to go to Bible college. He thought I was kidding. He said, oh, yeah, hey, whatever. Hey, I want to tell you about our program. I said, Coach, I'm serious. God's called me to preach. He said, son, do you realize what you're throwing away? You know what, 25 years later, I want to say, do you know what I got? There's never been one day my head has ever come off the pillow that I ever regretted following God. Because there was a dad that wasn't just too busy willing to step into the life of a 10-year-old. Sometimes we get so wrapped up with work and the rat race, and then we come home, we're tired, and we go to bed. You may watch TV. We get up, we do it all over again, and, and there's just day that goes by, day by day by day that, 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 that goes by, and, and we get so preoccupied with other things that have no bearing on eternity. And little by little, let me tell you, you are being robbed. When we give in to our hobbies, to our sports, I tell you, when, when they canceled sports in this coronavirus, and I, I tell you, for some people, I mean, suicide literally went up. There were people, that's all they lived for. It was such an idol in their life, and it had one fatal swoop. Now it was all gone. Okay, there's nothing wrong with sports. Or whatever it is you want to plug in that you do, what has become more important to him in your life tonight? We get so preoccupied with other things. We would never say it, but we reflect it in how we spend our time. This isn't more clearly illustrated in any other passage. In Luke chapter 10, verses 14 following, it's the story of the Lord coming to the house of Mary and Martha. And remember, they're working in the kitchen. They're working, getting things ready in the house. And the Bible says that Martha was cumbered about with much service. The word cumbered means, it's the Greek word for distracted. Isn't that interesting? She was so focusing on serving and getting everything ready. And, and really, it's not wrong to serve. But she wasn't even cognizant of the fact the Lord was already there. And she maybe is working around the house, working up a sweat, and there's just Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Lord, isn't that bothering? She's irritated by it. And he says, he says, Martha, you're careful or you're anxious about many things, but Mary had chosen that one needful thing which should not be taken away from her, and that was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And can I tell you, you have one needful thing in your life, and that is sitting at the feet of the Master. You can get everything done on your checklist, and if you haven't spent time with him, you know what? You still haven't really done anything. We get so preoccupied with all of the idols that we bow down to with our time. We get so preoccupied. You know, for those for, that are involved in ministry, the pastors and the interns, have you ever found yourself during a day you get so involved in the administration of the church and it's so busy in serving, we begin to miss our time with him too. Man, that happens to me. I don't know if it happens to you. And we're being robbed. You are being robbed tonight by the robber call preoccupation. Quickly, would you look at verse 14 again? 
My people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And here's part of the text that many times we forget uh, about or that's often left out when it's quoted. It says, and turn from our wicked ways. Number four is the robber called perversity. The robber called perversity. You know why sometimes we're robbed of revival? We're flat out not even right with God. We are harboring sin and unconfessed sin in our life, and we're not walking in the light as he is in the light. That's why we don't have fellowship with him. We don't lose our salvation. But I tell you, we're just so far from him, and we just allowed so many things to come in. It's really just robbing us of our joy and our satisfaction that we have in Christ. I tell you, pornography is absolutely killing us in this country. You realize tonight that pornography makes more money than ABC, CBS, and NBC combined? Pornography makes more money than the NBA, especially this year. They canceled after, after a season, but makes more money than the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball combined. It's a huge industry, $15 billion a year in the U.S., $90 billion worldwide. But pornography is absolutely killing us. Pornhub is the number one porn site on the Internet. And you know the chances are there are people sitting in this room. You've been to Pornhub this week. Maybe you delete your temporary browsing history. You delete all the cookies. Take a sledgehammer, smash your computer. God knows where you've been. So do a whole lot of other people. And maybe this vice, this private vice, you've just gotten comfortable with. It's the elephant in the room. You know what? Tonight you think you're the only one that struggles with it. And so you know what? You put your head down. You just go through life thinking nobody else struggles with this. Could I tell you, you're not the first and you won't be the last. But I want you to hear me tonight. You can have victory in your life. You don't have to have this area in, this li- in your life that just plagues you and robs you of revival and just destroys you. There are some in this room tonight, you're not even married. Your pornography habit is destroying your marriage and you don't even know who your spouse is yet. Man, my heart goes out to the kids of, of, of this generation. You know, again, you, if you're a younger person, you didn't choose to grow up in the generation that you're growing up in. But let me tell you, you can live for God. Don't you ever quit on him. God's never going to quit for you. You guys are facing some things. Really, as a teenager, I didn't have to face. Listen, I went to college before Al Gore invented the internet, okay? Uh, I went to college without even having, a, having, having a, a computer. Listen, you guys are face. It's just all around you, bombards you everywhere you turn. But can I tell you, you can have victory. You really can. But man, it is absolutely killing us. A pastor friend of mine took a church in Massachusetts and he was trying to move the church to a more conservative positions on some things. So for three years, he never made any changes. They just kind of rolled along how they were doing it. And after three years, he made the first change. And that was, he asked the Sunday school teachers to sign an agreement or sign a covenant with the church and with God that as a Sunday school teacher, that you would be willing to covenant with your class and with God that you wouldn't be involved in drugs, alcohol, tobacco, or pornography. I mean, that's like a no-brainer, right? That's a no-brainer, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it should go without saying that your Sunday school teacher is not token up on reefer Saturday night. Now, that'll explain a lot of Sunday school lessons I've heard in the past. But, uh, you, you know, I mean, that ought to go without saying. There were three guys that were in his office, deacons, Sunday school teachers, giving him heat about having to sign that. They said, preacher, you can't tell me what I can look at in the privacy of my own home. He stood up and says, you know what, you're right. I can't. But he can 
What, know ye not? You are bought with a price. And your body's not your own. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. They said, come on, preacher. Pornography is a victim with sin. I wonder how victimless it was when three days later, that same Sunday school teacher deacon was arrested for 123 counts of sexual molestation on his kids. He's behind bars for 30 years. And I could take you to a living room in Boston, Massachusetts tonight, and you ask that family if pornography is victimless. And in almost every week, there is a family member that comes to me and says, we're another home destroyed by pornography. Kid at camp walked up to us. They said, I don't know what to do. I called my dad on a wicked website. It was late at night. I don't know what to do. I said, have, have you talked to your pastor? He said, he is my pastor. James Dobson had a hotline with focus on the family for those struggling with pornography to call and receive free counseling. One out of every seven calls to that hotline were made by a pastor seeking counsel for themselves. Metaphorically speaking, if that's what's happening up here, What's happening out there? You won't be the first to struggle with it. You're not going to be the last. But man, you don't have to be robbed. You can have victory. But you're just going to have to take the hard look in the spiritual mirror of God's word and just get honest. God, I have this in my life. I don't want it. God, would you just take it from me? And I tell you, the power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave is the same power that resides in you tonight. If you're a believer in Christ, you don't have to be robbed. You can have victory. And, and evangelists, we're usually paid for preaching on drunkenness or drug abuse or, or immorality, pornography. But aren't sins of the Spirit equally as damaging? What about jealousy tonight? You know what jealousy says? Oh, I want what that person has. You know what envy says? Well, if I can't have it, I want to take it away from them. Because if I can't have it, I certainly don't want them to have it. Man, who could stand before envy? Or maybe bitterness tonight, an unwillingness to forgive someone. What sin is it tonight that is robbing you from living and walking revival? We've seen God's plea for revival. We must answer the request. We see God's precautions for revival. As this text, this verse breaks itself into three natural sections, we see the precautions of revival and the devil's the robber and, and maybe some guys in the room, we gotta step up to the plate and take the spiritual position of leadership or maybe we just need to get broken and humble and stop ignoring the sin that is in our life or maybe ladies, you need to forgive someone else and, or maybe it's the robber of prayerlessness or preoccupation or perversity. But I want you to see number three as I close quickly, the promises of revival. Look at what God promises. Listen, when these conditions are met, it's not you just do A, B, C, and D, and you know what? God will love you more because of your performance, and he'll send revival. No, this is where faith comes in. As we meet these conditions, we just trust in the mercy and the power and the goodness of our God. Notice the promises that he gives to us. He said, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, just get honest about your sin. Just take the mask off. Notice what he says. Then why hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. He says, first of all, then I will hear from heaven. You know what the first promise is? Is that God is going to hear. 
When he says that he's going to hear from heaven, this Hebrew word has the idea that God is not only ready to receive you, but God is ready to respond to you tonight. It almost has the idea, you know, if you've ever played sports as a kid, you know, especially when I played football, somehow if you're, if you're on the bench, there is some erroneous thinking, and we all do it, don't we? We think if we stand close to the coach and somebody needs to go in, that he's just going to go, oh, hey, you're here. Why don't you go in? I mean, that's not how it works. And no coach does that, right? I mean, didn't we all do it if you ever rode the pine in sports? You think, if I just sit close to the coach, maybe I can get in the game. But maybe you were, you know why you did that? Because you were eager to get in the game. And maybe you were just almost standing up off your seat, just waiting to get on the court or waiting to get, uh, waiting to get on the field. That's what God is saying tonight. He has this eagerness. There's an anticipation. Listen, man, tonight if you pray and humble yourself and turn from your, your wicked ways and, 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 and you call upon him and you're not preoccupied, you seek his face, he's not only ready to receive you tonight. Listen, the God of heaven that made you is ready to respond to you tonight. Re- revival can be a reality tonight. He promises that he is going to hear. Look at verse 14. He says, then I will hear from heaven... And will forgive their sin. He is going to hear, but number two, he's going to help. As I said this morning, I don't care what sin you've committed, God can forgive you. God could pick you up, brush you off, and use you in ways you never dreamed were possible. God can forgive you. He's going to forgive your sin. He's going to hear from heaven. He's going to initiate revival in your life. And you know what? He is going to forgive your sin. He's going to hear. He's going to, he's going to help. But look what he says at the very end. He says, and heal your land. Would you agree with me tonight that America needs healing? And if you don't, you haven't been paying attention to what's been going on. And it's not just this week. Man, it, it, it's been forever since the curse. And we need healing. God is going to hear, he's going to help, but he is going to heal. Have you ever asked yourself the question, well, how is he going to do that? Every revival that you will read about in our country or countries abroad, it always started with prayer, strong presence in the pulpit, but it usually began with one or two private individuals that with a reckless abandon, they ran to God They made right whatever sin it was. They didn't care what the consequences were. And they didn't care what it did to their reputation with a reckless abandon. They made things right with God. They made it right with men. And you know what? Maybe they went back to other people and says, man, I wronged you. Would you forgive me? And in return, those people said, you know what? Man, I wronged you and I responded wrong to you as well. Would, Would you forgive me? And that revival spilled out of that one or two. And other people said, man, I want that. And that private revival became public. A reporter was sent to cover the Welsh revival. He was crossing the street. He asked a police officer, he said, sir, can you please tell me where the Welsh revival is taking place? He said, I sure can, right here. You know, it's often it said, draw a circle, pray for God to send revival to everything in that circle, then you step in the circle. You know what the idea is? It begins with us. In fact, over in Scotland, there was such a revival that was breaking out. There were these people that worked in the shipyards, the same shipyards that built parts of the Titanic, that, that these people, after they were getting saved in a revival that was sweeping through their country, they all worked for the shipyard. They all got, right, they all got saved 
but they all needed to get right with, with people that they had wronged. They started to bring things back to the shipping company that they had stolen from the shipping company, parts and pieces and tools. The shipping company had to build another warehouse to house everything that those people had stolen throughout the years. They, in fact, they called it Nicholson Shed because Nicholson was the man preaching those meetings. And, but that's the nature of revival. That's the nature of what it is with the reckless abandoned. We don't care about our reputation. We don't care about what our spouse or our parents or our kids are going to think about us or what other church people. We live for the audience of one, and that's him. And we make things right with him. And that private revival turns into public revival. My good friend in the ministry, John Getch, when he was a student at Maranatha, was taking a class, and, and he actually cheated. I, I believe it's the final exam. It may have been a test within the semester, but he cheated on the final exam. And after he graduated, he was in full-time ministry. You know what God kept dealing with him about? <laughs> Cheating on that test. He would kind of just dismiss it, kind of go along his way. Have you ever prayed, God, show me anything in my life that doesn't please you? And that one thing keeps coming up from your past. You know what I'm talking about? That one thing that you're embarrassed by or there would be consequences, so you just throw it in the closet of your past. The problem is you're being trapped in the prison of your past. He just kept dismissing it, just, oh, you know what? You know, I would have made an A anyway. Well, then why'd you have to cheat? He was in a, a revival meeting and he was preaching and it just nothing happened all week long. It was Thursday of that week. He went into a park across the street from the church. He was just saying, God, we haven't seen anybody saved. We, we haven't just seen anything happen. And, and it, it just feels like I'm just preaching to a brick wall. God, is it me? And as soon as he said the words, is it me? God brought that situation back to John's mind. And that offense merited, at the time, expulsion. That's why he just kind of covered it up, and he thought, you know what, I'm not running any longer. He crossed the street, went back into the church. He called his professor at Maranatha Baptist Bible College, which is now Maranatha Baptist University today, and called his professor over and says, hi, Professor So-so, this is John Getch. He says, so, John, how you doing? He says, well, I'm in a revival meeting, and I need your help. He said, sure, anything. He says, I had you for a class. I remember that. You made an A. He said, sir, I don't know how to tell you this, and God's convicted me about this many times in my life. But I cheated on that final exam. I am prepared to return my diploma to the school. I am prepared to cancel my meetings, come back to the school, retake the class. I'll do whatever I need to do, but I've got to make this right. He took care of the things with things with the school on the phone. John walked in to preach. He said, Ron, this never happened to me before or since in my ministry. He preached 10 minutes. And the Spirit of God said, John, get out of the way. He shut his Bible, gave an invitation, and the people responded for over an hour. Walking an old-fashioned aisle, people getting saved, right with God, making things right that had been wrong for 20-plus years. Listen, God blew that meeting wide open. Because there was one. He said, God, is it me? And with a reckless abandon, ran to Christ. He's your refuge. He's your reviver. And revival became a reality. That can happen 
to you right here, right now. But would you just get honest with him? Undoubtedly, as I preach, the Spirit of God, can you identify with me in any of these? The Spirit of God probably put his finger on an issue of your life, or maybe you need growth, another step, or a sin to make. I, I don't know, but you do. Heaven is already in motion. He's already initiating revival. And he's ready to receive and respond to you tonight. Man, would you just return back to normal and have no sin between you and this, your soul and the Savior? Revival can be a reality tonight. Revival or ruin. It's your choice tonight. Would you stand quietly as we pray? Father, I've done the best that I know how to do tonight. Thank you for the for the patience of your people. And, but God, you're in this building tonight. And your spirit is working. And it's, it's evident tonight. And God, we're telling you tonight we need your help. Lord, help us not to run from you, but to run to you. Lord, help us to take that next step where we need to take. Or would you allow revival to be a reality tonight?